Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to Washed Away, a podcast that breathes new life into Washington State's coldest cases. I'm Ashley Smith, and I was recently invited to take a tour of the Snohomish County Medical Examiner's Office, and I got to interview investigator Jane Jorgensen. We talked about the details of her job, Snohomish County's unidentified and recently identified cases, and how much of a role genealogy plays in finding out who someone was. You'll hear a lot of names, dates, and locations on this special episode as we try to bring more attention to folks who either still need help to solve the mystery of who they were or to help figure out who killed them. My name is Jane Jorgensen, and I'm an investigator with the Snohomish County Medical Examiner's Office. I started in late 1995 in King County. I fell in love with this type of work when I did an internship at the Arapahoe County Coroner's Office uh, out in Colorado, and I just loved everything about it. Identifying people, figuring out what happened to them before they died, helping the doctor uh, during the autopsies. I just love solving puzzles and mysteries and uh, that's what got me into it. It's not like on TV because it's way more glamorized on TV. It's it's much more boring in person and we don't you know dress in heels and skirts like they do on TV to go to crime scenes. <laughs> the other thing I think that's misleading about television is it takes a long time for results to come back. Like some of our lab results can take up to a couple months and people used to on TV having all their results back in an hour and the case being solved and it just doesn't work that way in real life. Also, it's oftentimes very traumatic for people to view their deceased family members and on TV a lot of times they show people going into the morgue and they pull out a body out of some cabinets on a wall and they identify them that way and we so rarely do that because it's very traumatic on the family members. We try to do it other ways than that. So, But sometimes people expect that. If you've never been to a medical examiner's office, that's probably a good thing. But honestly, it looked like any other office building. There was a front desk, a waiting room, some cubicles, a conference room where we recorded this interview, and then a really large room, kind of like a garage, very cold and gray and clean, and that's where autopsies are performed. I don't know why I was surprised that it smelled in there. We've all heard that before, right? But I was, and it did, though just faintly. Jane was actually surprised I even noticed, and of course, you know, she's used to it. She's there every day. 
She took me to another large room in that building with a storage closet where there was a handful of boxes sitting on metal shelves. That's where the remains, the, the bones of unidentified folks, wait to get their names back, and it's where the people we're talking about today are being kept safe. I had a million questions for Jane, as you might imagine, but I thought I'd start with where she starts on an investigation. So we start with um, the scene and the items found at the scene. For example, if there's clothing or jewelry, or sometimes there's a wallet with an ID on it, that's super simple and that's what we hope happens, but it doesn't in a lot of cases. So we just start from there. Probably the first thing we do is while we're there with the police, you know, uh, either unburying the decedent or gathering them, they're usually skeletonized remains. We find out from the law enforcement agency, do they have any missing people in their area? And so we'll start looking at those people first. Once we get the decedent back to our office, they get looked at by a forensic pathologist, a forensic anthropologist, and a forensic odontologist. The forensic pathologist is looking for trauma and also postmortem interval. And then the forensic anthropologist is the one who's gonna also look for trauma and determine an estimate for race, sex, height, weight, those sort of things. And then the forensic odontologist is uh, basically a forensic dentist who does a dental exam and does dental charting, uh, dental x-rays, and um, gives us a report. What we're hoping for at that point, if we haven't ID'd the person by anything at the grave with him or her, is we enter the unidentified person into NCIC. And the dentist enters the dental information that they've charted into NCIC and they run a matching report. And so a lot of times we'll get what we call a cold NCIC dental hit. So if a missing person has had their dental charting put into NCIC, the family of the missing person has put their dental charting into NCIC, we'll get a hit right away. And the person is quickly identified. The process takes about a week uh, to you know, get the person back to her office, do an exam, do the paperwork to get them entered, get them entered into the computer, get the forensic odontology exam, get it all coded, and then get it put into the computer. So it can take up to a week. Those are the basics of the job, but there's this whole other area to what Jane does now. And I was really curious when that started. When did DNA and genealogy come into the process? So in 2018, uh, Detective Jim Scharf and I of the Sheriff's Office started working with Barbara Rayventer, uh, Colleen Fitzpatrick, and Margaret Press. And they worked on a couple of our cases for us. They solved a couple of our cases for us. And then we kind of just learned how to do it from them. We also worked very closely with a genealogist from Oregon named Deb Stone. And she currently has a couple of our cases that she's working on, and she advises us on our cases too. And so on two of our cases right now, we're doing the genealogy in-house, and we've solved a couple uh, ourselves. It is hard, because I didn't have any genealogy experience before this. I've since built my family trees, so it's easier now, because I understand the relationships a little bit better. I'm still no genealogist, and I only get the easy cases. The harder cases, we turn over to the, you know, the professional genealogists. But if we get a really good match, like a first cousin match, those are the ones we've been solving in-house. It's kind of like a game where you just find the missing person 
looking at all the other people in the tree. But it's it can be very complicated, especially when people have you know 10, 12 children, and then those children have children, and those children have children. There's a website called the Shared Centimorgan Project tool, and let's say you get a hit back from, or a, a Centimorgan match back from, let's say GenMatch, and a good hit would be like a parent-child relationship or a sibling relationship. So let's say you get a 3,000 Centimorgan um, relationship back. That's easy to solve because that you put that 3,000 number into the shared Centimorgan project tool and it tells you who you should be looking for. You know, you should either be looking for a parent-child, a sibling, and there's some different choices. So you kind of know where you should be looking in, in the trees. Snohomish County currently has seven doe cases or unidentified remains that they're working on identifying, and some go as far back as the 1970s. I asked how much harder it is to work on a doe case that's been cold for that long versus one that's, you know, more recent. The cases from the 70s are harder for a couple of reasons. One, a lot of records from back then have been destroyed. A lot of people have either forgotten or died that might have known um, something about the case. We have a case uh, from 1979. We call him Spencer Island Doe, and he was found on January 3rd, 1979, near the Steamboat Slough near Marysville. And we did a couple of news articles on him, and we had people call in who remembered him. He had a broken femur that had never been set. So one leg was a couple inches shorter than the other. And people remembered him walking around North Everett, but they couldn't remember a name. A couple of police officers from back then called in and could describe him very well. They said he walked like drag, drug his right foot behind him because of his, his leg injury. And they also said that he was missing a front tooth. So they remembered him, they just didn't remember his name. And so we couldn't, there's no records from back then existing to find out how or why they contacted him. That has to be so frustrating because you're so close. So frustrating. Like people actually saw this person. Yeah, and remembered him. Yeah. We were even trying to get into old databases that have been saved on like CD files, but we just, we couldn't get in. We can't find the passwords. There's no software to run it anymore because we were thinking maybe some um, information from back then got stored on it, but we just couldn't get in. Another person found in the 70s was on September 7th, 1977, when a bulldozer operator at the Marysville landfill discovered human remains and garbage that had been collected from a business area in Seattle. The remains were determined to be a Native American male with a fair complexion. It's assumed that he had long black hair, was 25 to 40 years of age, stood at 5'10 to 6 feet tall, and had long, delicate fingers, which is such an interesting detail. The cause and manner of death for him are undetermined. McCollum Doe is our most recent unidentified case, and he was found on September 26, 2020, in a shallow grave in South Everett. So the late Dr. Kathy Taylor examined him and um, told us that he's a male, 22 to 43 years old, and he's either Native American, Asian, Hispanic, or mixed race descent. He's about 5'3 to 5'9, and he's been deceased 
probably for many years. Uh, the official estimate is between 1 and 30, and he is a homicide. So we're currently working on him. Uh, we have done genetic genealogy. We have we got very low matches back, but we are building trees, and we hope to solve him sometime in the next couple of years. We sent off a bone sample to Othram Labs, and they processed it, got a DNA file, and we uploaded it to GEDmatch, and we got back some hits. They're relatively low. They're 20, 30 centimorgans, which are fourth or fifth cousins. And so we're building ancestry trees um, on those matches, and we're hoping to find a missing person in their trees. But it's very difficult with those low matches because the tree's just so big. On February 28, 1991, a fisherman on the Skykomish River found human remains on the riverbank. Additional remains were discovered in Monroe a month later. Then in August of that same year, folks swimming in the South Snohomish River discovered even more remains. Autopsy and DNA testing connected all the discoveries to one man, and whoever this poor soul was died of homicidal violence. Not much is known about him, unfortunately, other than he was a white male. The other stats say unknown age, unknown height, and unknown weight. I imagine without a DNA match, this doe will be very hard to identify. So Sultan Basin doe it was found on April 9th, 2007 uh, by some loggers inspecting some land out near the Sultan Basin Road near Sultan, Washington. And he was, the forensic anthropologist determined that he is a white male, about 20 to 50 years old, unknown height and unknown weight, and he's been estimated to be deceased about one to five years. And currently his cause of manner death are undetermined. So we have obtained DNA and it's running in CODIS. We have not had any hits. Uh, we've not had any NCIC dental hits on him. And we have done whole genome sequencing and we have a DNA file on him and it's uploaded to GEDmatch, but we've got very low matches. So we're building ancestry trees on him, um, attempting to uh, figure out who his family is. So Snohomish County seems to be having more success with DNA matches and identifying people than other counties in Washington state, at least lately. They've been in the news a lot with these breakthroughs. And I was really curious to ask why that is or if it was just my perception. We've been working very closely with the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office cold case team since uh, about 2016. And um, we made it our goal to identify all of our unidentified people uh, cold cases that we've had um, from the 1970s to 2016 were our cold cases. And I think the reason we're so successful is we committed to doing it and our bosses are supportive of us doing it. But let's talk about some solved ones. Our most recent uh, solved case was a 1980 case. On August 3rd, 1980, a homeowner up off of the Stanwood Bryant Road found skeletal remains in the woods near his house. They'd been scattered in oh, quite a large area. He is a victim of a homicide. He is a gunshot wound to the head. And at the time, uh, he was determined to be a male, white or Hispanic, 18 to 50 years old, uh, from 5'3 to 5'11 tall. And it was estimated that he had been deceased uh, about a year. We did um, genetic genealogy 
and Othram did the work for us and they got a really good hit and um, we have identified him as Ronald David Chambers. He was from Rome, Georgia. He was 28 years old at the time of his disappearance and he disappeared from a motel uh, down in SeaTac on December 17, 1978. There are suspects in his murder and that's not really our purview, that's the sheriff's office. But I do know that he was last known alive. He left the motel with a known felon who had a firearm and the known felon came back and Ronald didn't come back. So there is a suspect in his murder. He died in prison in California in the 90s. So was he in Nameless the whole time? He was. And we, we had looked at him. He'd been on our radar, but he didn't have DNA in uh, CODIS. So that's why, and he didn't have any dental information. So that's why it took us so long to figure out who he was. Because we knew he was a possibility. Um, Jan Gregory from the King County Sheriff's Office um, knew about our homicide victim and always thought that Ronald could be a candidate for him. But we just, uh, you know, were unable to match it until we did genetic genealogy. Though you won't hear about them on this episode, Jane and I did briefly talk about Rodney Johnson and Lisa Ann Roberts, who have both been identified recently. You can learn more about them on my episode with forensic artist Natalie Murray. So Snohomish Jetty Doe was a male who was found in the Snohomish River near Dagmar's Landing on June 20, 1980. And he was estimated to be a Caucasian male, 20 to 40 years old, from five feet, five inches to six feet tall, 160 pounds. Uh, his hair and eye color was unknown. And he, his cause of death was drowning. His manner of death was undetermined. Uh, he was buried at a local cemetery in 1980 after he was not identified at the time. And then we exhumed him in October of 2018 um, to get DNA and try to identify him. So we sent a sample to Othram Labs, and they got us a whole genome sequence, which we uploaded to GEDmatch, and we got um, a sibling um, relationship hit. So he was, we identified him in-house pretty quickly. He was in the Air Force, yep. We ultimately got his dental records from the Air Force and confirmed the ID that way. And it actually, we, we kind of knew that you could get dental records from the military, but we have since requested all of our missing, our known missing people records from the military, if any of them were in the military. Um, so it kind of opened up a new uh, lead for us to, to get some dental x-rays for people. Once the medical examiner's office figures out who someone was and how they died, they are then either released to their families or sent to detectives. What happens then is out of Jane's hands, and it's really just a waiting game as she's done her job and now someone else has to do theirs. But don't feel too helpless about things because there are some steps that families of missing loved ones and the public, meaning you and me, can do to help bring closure and justice to cases like these. You know, as you and I know, the missing persons, people in the police are often overwhelmed. So you kind of need to be your own advocate for your missing person. So if you have a reported missing person, call the detective or the agency and make sure that person is still a reported missing person and get a copy of the case and a case number. 
and occasionally people get taken out of NCIC, they're missing. It used to happen a lot more when juveniles turned 18, they just kicked them out of NCIC. I don't think that's happening anymore, but things do happen and people get taken out of NCIC. So you may think your person is reported missing and they've been inadvertently taken out of the database. So, and it might be worth every year or so following up with that agency or that detective and just making sure that um, the person is still active in NCIC. And the other part of that is if you know who their dentist is, let the police agency know and they'll get their dental charting and x-rays and upload it to NCIC. That way, if they're found, they can be identified quickly. Oh, and the other thing is, um, if they're not in NamUs, your reported missing person, have them entered into NamUs and submit swabs, DNA swabs. So a lot of our unidentified people have CODIS DNA, but there's no hits. So if they need close family members, but if they would upload their DNA to CODIS through the law enforcement agency, they could possibly get uh, the person identified that way. CODIS is very specific in what they can do. They need a very close relative, and they need two. So they need like a parent, child, or two siblings, a mom and a sibling. Otherwise, it won't hit, because we've had a couple where one person was in, you know, one family reference sample was in and our person was in and they didn't hit. So they're very specific in what they can and can't do. But if you get at least two really close relatives, they should there should be a CODIS hit if the unidentified person is in there. GEDmatch, it's a whole different ballgame. You don't your actual family doesn't even have to have their DNA in there. Some cousin you don't know can have their DNA in, in there and we you can be the person can be identified. I don't understand exactly how the databases work, but I think it's a numbers game. If there were enough people in GEDmatch, you know, people are so interconnected that it would be much easier to identify unidentified people. It's true. If, if everyone was in there, like right. people were in there, you would be getting right. left and right. And you don't even need everyone. Like, if my two parents' DNA is in there, you don't really need mine. So everybody doesn't have to be in there, but if a lot of people put their DNA in there, it'll make it way easier to help solve cases. I think it's just gonna get easier and easier in future years to identify people this way. I of course wanna thank Jane and the Snohomish County Medical Examiner team for doing this interview and letting me spend time in their office. I didn't take many photos while I was there. I was recording and walking around and honestly, it, it felt like it would be a little disrespectful to post photos of these people's bones anyway, but I did snap a photo of the lobby, which is filled with sketches of unidentified people, the cases you just heard, and photos of those that have been identified. I'll be sure to post that in my show notes and on Instagram. For research purposes and just for someone who's like obviously interested in this work, I felt very honored to be able to spend some time with the folks that actually help solve the cases that I talk about on this podcast. And I hope you found this interesting or helpful or inspiring because I know I did. Washed Away is a Cosmic Bigfoot production with music by I Speak Waves and Joe Prestone and artwork by Shane Long. It's hosted by me, Ashley Smith. I'm also the producer, editor, and everything else of this podcast, meaning Washed Away is a one-woman show. You can support my work by leaving a five-star rating or review wherever you listen and by sharing these episodes on social media. 
Speaking of, follow Washed Away on Twitter and Instagram at WashedAwayPod. To see show notes and sources for each episode, visit WashedAwayPodcast.com. And yes, you can send in case suggestions. Email me, WashedAwayPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, especially through the credits. I'll have another episode ready for you very soon. This is your moment. Your moment to move forward and make progress. It's time to see where an education can take you. For over 130 years, Strayer University has been at the forefront of change, offering programs that help students like you get ahead and stay ahead so you can keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by Chef.